You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week is Sam Pettifer, co-founder of eBar Initiatives, a startup with a mission to change the way the world is served their beer. Their eBar dispenser allows event goers to get back to the event that they came to see and not spend ages in beer queues. So Sam, eBar pours beer really, really fast, but like any product-based startup, to grow the business as fast as you pour your beer, you've needed to go out and source some cash, which is uh, never easy. But I see that you've just closed a crowdfund to help you on your way, and I'd really like to hear all about your experiences with that. But before we dive into that a bit more, perhaps you could give us a quick overview of the business and your journey so far and how you got to this point. Good morning, Vicky, and uh, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. I'm an avid listener, so it's uh, quite weird to be on the other side, actually. So um, my name's Sam Pettifer, and as you very nicely introduced, um, I'm the co-founder of eBar. We started the company almost three years ago now, uh, three years next week. On a, on a vision of trying to change how beer is served at large events. Uh, and, and really what we started out looking at is how can we create a self-service dispenser that does away with all the bad things that you experience when you're queuing at a bar at a big festival or a sports venue. And it's been a, it's been a long journey and, and we're still on it. And the, it, does, it does cost a lot of money to develop new products. Uh, so bootstrapping slash raising investment um, has been has been a, an interesting experience, um, but I'm really pleased we've just closed our, our recent round and we're able to kind of go on to the next one. So are you still in the getting the money in phase or are you in the, oh my goodness, I've got to spend it now phase? Still in the final touches of the getting the money in yeah. phase. The busiest time. Oh, it always uh, goes on way longer than you expect it to as well, that bit. It's amazing how the round closed nearly six weeks ago now, um, and uh, money's not in yet, so I think that's certainly a lesson around how long it takes to even just do the final bit. So what what was your experience of funding the business so far? How have you balanced bootstrapping, taking external investment, and... Why did you ultimately decide crowdfunding was the right route to go for the business? We've had three years in business, and you, we could almost say that each year we've done something slightly different. So for approximately the first year, it was very much founder, bootstrap, a little bit of cash from, from myself, a co-founder, and mainly uh, using utilizing grants, things like Smart Award and, and, other, and other awards, and to drive forward our prototype, we then realised that we, we we weren't even touching the sides. You know that's the problem with bootstrapping. Sometimes you get to a point where you realise you're, you're you're kind of slowly making progress because money is the main restriction, not the actual ability to do the work. We we looked into our uh, our first round um, in June 2018. So we had a year of bootstrapping. We did our first round of investment with a syndicate from London, Edinburgh, and 
Glasgow and some private individuals. And so our first external round of funding was for £228,000. And that was really like an adrenaline shot. <laughs> when, you've been, <laughs> when you've been bootstrapping for a year, when you suddenly have a, a big chunk of money in the bank, it's amazing what you can, what you can do. I remember taking a photograph of my bank balance the the day that I did my first round where at one point, I think, you know, I had £250,000 in the bank or something. I, I still have it. I took a picture of the screen. It was like the most money I'd ever seen in a bank account ever. It was a cool feeling just for a moment before you go, oh my God, the responsibility, the pain, the fear. Uh, now I have to spend it. And then you realize how quickly it goes. Absolutely. And I think probably the scariest thing is you, you've almost got this feeling of needing to spend it. But actually what you did when you bootstrapped was really, you were really economical. And you were making, you were very, very careful with money. And you've got to be really careful that you don't switch and just say, I've got loads of money. I'm just going to spend it all. Because as you say, it will go quicker. Than oh, absolutely. Happens. And it's quite funny because you do get, in some ways, quite a lot of pressure to spend it quite quickly. I mean, I'm a very bootstrappy person. I'm actually much more comfortable in frugal mode than in, hey, let's just spend our way out of it mode. But that's almost, you almost kind of get the vibe that that's a very bad founder behavior, being careful with your money. Absolutely. And uh, when you think about when you're bootstrapping, you're, you're incredibly careful to make sure the requirements of your work are known the scope and you're you actually often can spend more time evaluating suppliers than if you are in a rush and you, you want to spend your money quickly so I, I tend to find that you've got to almost have a bootstrap mentality but with cash in the bank yeah yeah and I think that applies to to how you hire as well I think I've made worse hiring mistakes when I've had money than when when I haven't, I think. <laughs> so you did this external investment round. You got a reasonable amount in, but money goes quite quickly. Um, at what point did you start thinking about crowdfunding? Uh, uh, wh when did that come on the radar and, and, and how did you approach it? So we, we did our, our first round of funding and that kind of took us approximately uh, through to a year. We effectively had a year of runway. So that was June last year, taking us through to, to June this year. And um, as is always the way, when you, when you first get your money, we, we were doing all the cool things. So we, we opened a workshop, we hired an engineer, and you know we started to become what I would describe as a, as a real business, actually, um, which, which felt pretty cool. But as you get to the later stages of that, runway you start to think actually okay money is, is ebbing out the account we've now got some substantial overheads we've got premises we've got salaries to pay uh, we need to get ready for the next uh, for the next round and you know we we did evaluate a number of options so uh, we we actually put crowdfunding in as an option alongside all of the existing investor base plus some new investors and we considered that alongside kind of looking at all of those um, really our, our main kind of thought that crowdfunding was potentially a feasible option for us is that we have quite a, an appealing product. You know, we are on a noble mission to change the way that beer is served. I mean, who wouldn't like that? And beer is an area where people like um, BrewDog 
have really sort of changed the game, I suppose, by leveraging crowdfunding very, very, very effectively, not just as an investment tool, but a marketing tool. Was that something that influenced you? I'd certainly say it was something that influenced us. I suppose the only challenge that we had is that we are not a big company, so to speak. So we weren't offering, or we didn't have the ability to offer any um, rewards, so to speak. So we no we free beer. did an equity crowdfunding raise. Um, but definitely having a, having a proposition that was readily kind of identifiable by people um, and the kind of very well-known beer industry crowdfunding link did help, uh, did certainly help us. And we were encouraged by by probably upwards of 10 um, of our kind of various advisors in the network to say, you should definitely try crowdfunding. You know, you never know. The, the response that people get when they use the e-bar is the type of response that people say, well, we should definitely crowdfund. Perhaps just for uh, listeners who haven't done a crowdfund themselves or um, are still sort of thinking about if it's for them. Could you tell us a little bit about what you learned from your own research and planning about the different types of crowdfund you can do and which ones make sense? Absolutely. Uh, um, we did quite a lot of research at the same time as researching the various investor groups um, that we were, we were looking at potentially helping in our second round. We looked at all of the various crowdfunding platforms and the types of crowdfunding. Um, there's been a really good example in Aberdeen, actually. A, a fierce brewery have uh, opened a bar as a result of um, providing, it's a, it's a type of perk, but it's actually almost like a prepayment. And, and that was a fantastic method of crowdfunding because what they did is they, they invited people to invest to help them open the bar by effect, putting in 10, 20, 30 pounds. Hmm. And in return, you got 60 pounds vouchers you had double your money worth of vouchers so that was effectively customers prepaying and then they were able to use that once the bar had opened so, so we looked that's at things really like that. interesting and i wouldn't actually have associated that with crowdfunding per se that's one of my favorite business models costco used to do that which is that you get people to pre-join you give them some vouchers that they'll spend in your store then you build the store and they run you know cash flow positive as a result um, so it's very interesting to hear that that model being done like that. It was something we considered. I think it's a great idea. I mean, nonetheless, no doubt there will be a lot of admin associated with all of this. So I think yeah. there's definitely a big caveat for all listeners. You know, there is admin associated with this. That works in a consumer model. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll come back to admin because it's a, it's a thing that, that until you've done your first investment rounds, you don't realize the admin hell. Sorry, I interrupted you. We covered off prepayment as a business model. And what other crowdfunding ones did you look at? So we looked at perk options, and, and that's this idea that you, you know, if I was a bagel shop, you could you could get some bagels as a consequence of investing in us, or you get a membership card, and you get these various level of perks depending on how much you invest into the company. Um, and, and so we looked at that, and, and to be honest, it was, it was difficult for eBar to offer anything that would be impactful enough, in part because we, we don't have the national network as yet. We have ambitions, but we don't have eBars in every, in every stadium, so we can't offer kind of that kind of membership style. So we discounted that, but I think people that are selling smaller kind of consumer products 
it's absolutely a good way to go because in effect you're getting people to pre-buy um, pre-buy your product or even just buy part of being part of your product and part of your company and your ethos. That took you to the equity crowdfund. I mean, for, for certain types of business, I think unless you're a consumer product that people are essentially pre-buying or getting early access to, the majority of businesses, certainly the type of company that I do and, and, and that you're doing there, where you're selling to enterprise or you're selling to business customers are probably looking at equity crowdfunds. What did you learn about that? So with, with equity crowdfunding, there is a real opportunity to mobilize your evangelists, mobilizing the people that love your brand and what you're doing. So there, there was, for us, we had a small network, um, but I think we played a lot on the fact that we were a pretty cool beer dispensing company. But there are record-breaking crowdfunding raises that are undertaken by people like Revolut and others that have millions of users that they convert into investors. Um, so that was kind of the first thing, is having a tribe is a really important thing um, so that you actually have people that are coming in with you uh, and you're utilizing that. But we also learned that all the platforms are different and there are so many various options. Um, there are some equity-based crowdfunding platforms where you offer small perks alongside, as long as they are small enough to not breach any of the tax advantages. And we've looked at those. But really, the main difference between the various platforms when we were looking was was really associated with fees and also the way that the shareholders are registered. And that was a big concern for us, is making sure that we didn't necessarily have hundreds of individual shareholders that invested £10, for example, on our cap table, because that later down the road could be an absolute nightmare. Inter- you know, just out of interest, if you are if you are able to tell me how many individual, you know, how is it? How does it work on your cap table? What are they on the same class of shares as your earlier investors? And is it one block, or is it all the individuals laid out on the share cap table? So, Ebar has got one share class. Mm-hmm. At present, and all investors are on that. So we, we like to be very, very simple and clear with that. Um, so the, the crowdfunding investors are also within that. Mm-hmm. Um, because our fund uh, who invested in us in June 2018 had a, a nominee structure, which is that there are multiple investors that basically hide behind uh, a nominee that invests into the company, um, we effectively have the same structure with the crowdfunding investors. Oh. So we have... 500 individual investors as part of our crowdfunding, but we only have to deal with one entity. Wow, that sounds amazing. (laughs) Um, I wish my own share cap table looked like that uh, in my previous business. And it's interesting because you make a really important point there. There's As you as a founder think about crowdfunding, you need to think very hard, certainly engage your existing investors in the conversation about the, the share class and actually how that's going to be managed. My first investment round wasn't a crowdfund, but it was done by an angel group that had got very um, disparate members. They were like all distributed around the place and they didn't have a lead investor running that round. So I sort of did the admin function of the lead investor because it was my first time of ever raising money. I didn't understand what that would mean down the line. 
Um, and I dealt with, I can't remember, but about 25 individual angels. The angel fund that that was being managed by, they just literally stuck it on their crowdfund platform for people to be able to transfer their money to me. But what happened is in the process, two or three other people just randomly joined in. Not for tiny amounts of money, you know, for multiple thousands of pounds of money. And they sort of like tagged on the back of it because it had been on the crowdfund platform. So over the years, what happened is I had, you know, first 25, then 35, um, then more uh, individual investors who I had to manage the individual paperwork for. Everything from their tax relief forms to every time we needed to make a decision that involved shareholder consent, which is things like raising more money, I had to contact every single one of those shareholders individually to get their votes um, and to get, you know, their decisions in. And some of those people thought they'd invested through a crowdfund. So they didn't think they should needed to take notice of any of that stuff. And they didn't. Um, So the number of times later investment where I was chasing down one person who'd invested £10,000 through the crowdfund platform who thought they'd invested in a crowdfund to get a vote on a decision that would like make us let us raise another million or or something like that was unbelievable. So it's really good that you've done it the way you have. Did you take professional advice for that or was that something that came with the platform? Well, interestingly, we also we also have a number of private individuals and some syndicates on our cap table. And so we do have, you know, 25, 30 individuals as well. So we do have to do that process that you're describing. Although we have within our within our legals some provisions that allow um, that allow for kind of majority shareholder consent rather than yeah. absolute, um, the platforms generally will, will say whether whether people are under a nominee structure, which is whereby there's there's one entity that represents all shareholders, or whether they're individualised. Um, my my strong preference was that we was that if we were to do crowdfunding. We would make sure that they would people would sit within behind a nominee unless they were investing material amounts, of course. But but you know our, our minimum investment on our recent crowdfunding was ten pound forty four. Oh wow! So when mine went so, through the platform, yeah, our minimum was five thousand pounds. So it's quite interesting because like five ten thousand pounds, you kind of think of typical angel equity investments. So you were using an equity vehicle, but allowing very small investments for those that, that wanted to do that. It was, a, it was a fascinating process to go through. Having done a traditional angel investment round and then having pursued a crowdfunding round, there are some very interesting advantages and disadvantages to both. And what surprised you? Was there any aspect of it that turned out to be easier or more successful than you expected? The main aspect that really surprised me actually was was how people in London or in anywhere in the world that are part of this crowdfunding campaign would be willing to back you with considerable amounts of money, i.e. a new car amounts of money, having never met you, having never seen your product, but because they see that other people are engaged and because you have appealed to them as a result of a, of a good campaign, they're willing to do that. Now, that, that kind of really surprised me um, how willing people were able to do that. 
And also, it really provides validation that what you've got as an idea, as a business, is real and people do get it. You know, if people who you've never met before and you've never managed to do your little three-minute pitch to a buying into you like that, it shows that you really do have prospects. And you mentioned there, you know, people will spend a significant amount of money because other people have already done it. That relates to something um, Anne Ravenona told me right back at the beginning of this podcast, which is that if you're doing crowdfunding, you you tend to go in with at least 30% of the fund already raised before you start actively marketing it. Is that something that you did? Did you start at zero or did you kind of start from a certain amount before you took it out to the public? We started with a a reasonable percentage, somewhere somewhere around that, that 33% mark. Um, one of the biggest myths to dispel, I think, is that you can go into a crowdfunding with, with less than kind of 25-20%. You, your prospects and your proposition would have to be incredibly compelling to gather, gather the kind of momentum that's needed. So you absolutely have things lined up. I definitely recommend that people should not enter into a crowdfunding platform without at least 20% already committed to their campaign. Because the idea that, that somebody would have enough momentum to really sort of drive through um, conversion from the, the, the wider platform without having um, substantial amounts in that campaign yeah, it's just it's just not worth doing. The stress and the emotional process that you'll go through during a campaign is something that I don't think is really talked about. And actually, you know, you can find yourself obsessively checking. If you don't have any commitments or a sizable before undertaking your campaign, I would suggest just just wait mm-hmm. and build that up. Build people up to the point where you do meet that that kind of minimum. The the more you get, the better. And in fact, we saw some fantastic examples of people on our platform who had effectively already raised their entire target from an external party and were effectively using crowdfunding to top up an existing round, which is, you know, there's a no risk aspect to that there. That's really interesting. So it sounds like it's almost like it's a multi-phased raise that you're doing that first set of effort privately. You know, this is almost like a normal angel investment round where you're perhaps trying to get a few big check writers to commit so that you're covering up to about 25-30% of that round. Then there's almost like there's another phase where you're doing the first piece of marketing and selling to try to get some momentum. And then there's presumably, I mean, I, I did observe, you know, you, you're, it's nearly closing, we're so close this kind of final phase where you actually seem to have almost a final sprint with the round. Was that all systematic? Had you prepared all that through in advance or was that very reactive? It was all very much reactive. I think one of the the things about going through a, a crowdfunding campaign, it feels like we sprinted three or four marathons in a row. <laughs> there were incredible highs. You know, when we first got on the platform, we were flying we were in the middle of the, of the crowdfunding process. There were days when we actually went backwards. We actually had no money contributed and we actually had some money withdrawn. And that was pretty dark. Uh, and then at, at the very end, as we got towards the end, we thought we were just going to hit our kind of campaign target. And we ended up raising £100,000 more than our campaign target just in the last kind of week. 
Wow. So um, <laughs> it's an incredible experience. And I don't think you can always manage process because you can't manage that, that random person from Bristol or London who's willing to kind of contribute that kind of amount of money. You can't manage that. Um, but what you can manage is, is your social media and your marketing and also having having internally in your head uh, knowing if, if there are individuals that um, you're, you're kind of warming up to the process, when they see that you're 90% funded, it's a very nice way of converting them. Yeah. A lot of people, it's the first people to come in that are the hardest to get to come in. It, for, for, for people that haven't raised an angel round, I think what you, you tend to find a similar thing happens in that you're going out, you're probably going out meeting with quite a lot of people, but there are one or two individuals who have the ability to write either a reasonably large check, which takes you quite a long way through your round, or they're quite influential, or both. And if their name's on board, then it sends a message to the other angels and they get on board. Did it start almost like that and then flip into crowdfund mode? Yes, to an extent. Because we had our previous investors from the previous round, there's an element of people that were already engaged in the business were willing to follow on more than that kind of preemption let's say mm-hmm. uh, so they were willing to back us and as a consequence we were building that up and, and really had we not had the support from our existing investor base plus a few other kind of five ten fifteen thousand pound check writers we wouldn't have been able to enter the into the platform you know there were a couple of people on the platform we were on that, that fa- failed to get over a ten percent of their campaign target yeah. and they, they they came in very low so it really is a case of if you've got momentum, you can fly. If you don't have momentum, unfortunately, you, you, your campaign will fail and, and the cost of a failed campaign could be huge. Because presumably if the campaign fails, you don't you don't take any you don't get any of the money. It's not like you get if you're trying to raise ten hundred thousand pounds and you only get ten thousand pound commitment, you don't get the even the ten thousand pounds. Is that correct? It's correct on most platforms. There are occasional platforms that will allow you to to basically take take any funds that, that are pledged, if you like. But one of the, the fundamentals around what your target is in crowdfunding is that that has to align with what you've said you're going to do in your business plan. You don't want to end up in a situation where you've got less money than what you've committed to doing. Oh, so, absolutely, because your plan doesn't change. If you end up raising less money than you intended to, Nobody remembers that. They remembered what you said you were going to do, and now you're committed to doing it, but with a fraction of the money. It's a really dangerous thing to to take an underfunded round. Absolutely, and it sends a very bad signal to investors. And so actually coming, coming on to that, one of the key decisions that, that, that somebody crowdfunding has to make is what is your target? If it is an all-or-nothing campaign, if you set your target just £5,000 too much, you might find yourself with hours to go you could lose your entire investment because you're five thousand pounds off. So there is a there's a, a focus to look at that target and be really really sensible in setting a target that is achievable that you can deliver a business plan to. And then if you overfund, there are kind of optional extras that you bring in. Interesting. So that that whole period, like with yours, you raised an extra hundred thousand pounds almost in the last couple of days. Um, but presumably you would say as a business, you would agree there was a maximum you were prepared to go to. Because sometimes people can accidentally or overfund themselves at, at those rounds. Can't they? I've seen people that have raised way too much through 
a crowdfund because it's still quite a cheap round for people to be in, investing into. Presumably, if you if you have a huge success with it and you're doing an equity round and you end up giving away 15% more equity than you planned to, that has major consequences as well for you as a, a founder and what your share cap table looks like and, and who's controlling what. Yes, so within most platforms, um, they give you control at the point where you reach 100%. There is then a decision point as to how long you want to continue raising for, mm-hmm. for most platforms. Um, so, but, it, but it, the most important thing is that whatever funds you raise, you need to, as you say, Vicky, you need to be able to deliver the plan and what you've said in your campaign. That, that's the absolute critical thing. And we, we've seen, I've looked at lots of crowdfunding campaigns as part of researching how we go about doing this. And you see some people that have set a really good target and you see, see others that you, that you think, I wish you'd just set £50,000 less. You would have got the money you wanted in the end. But how it looks to investors would be very different. It sounds like this is a real active process. I mean, raising money is a full-time job. Every podcast episode where I've talked about anybody raising any kind of money, it always comes back to the same thing. Whilst you're doing investment of any kind, you pretty much do nothing else in your business as a founder. It is a full-time job raising money. And it sounds like crowdfunding is no different. It doesn't sound like this is something where you can raise it quicker and more easily than than the traditional routes. What kind of things are occupying your time on a day-to-day basis when you're trying to sell this round? So crowdfunding is equally as time-consuming as traditional angel investment. Um, and in fact, you could argue there are times when it's, when it's more uh, time-consuming. In preparing the campaign, there is often an awful lot of process you have to go through in terms of making a campaign video, making that really, really attractive and having a good proposition on that, making sure that all your claims within the campaign can stand up to scrutiny and, and your, the platform will often spend a lot of time on that before they even let you on onto the, uh, onto the campaign. Um, and then when the campaign's live and kicking, there will be questions, there will be direct contact from investors um, and so you're constantly, constantly doing that kind of process. So, it, I mean, it, it is a, it's a full-time activity. And remember that often with crowdfunding, you know, the, 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 the people that are engaged are, are ordinary people. They're not necessarily professional investors. You know, they pass through the platforms, necessarily due diligence and checks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they don't know your business in the same way that an angel group you pitch to three times would. Yeah, perhaps they're not necessarily so familiar with reading your accounts or knowing what, you know, knowing what, how the standard process works. So I can see how that could generate quite a lot of questions. I mean, certainly when I did my later angel rounds, which went a lot faster and a lot smoother than my first one, I would try to be very organized with the communication, which is like, okay, here's the pack here's the terms, here's the business plan, here's here's all the stuff you might need and I'm going to schedule a call on this date that you can all dial into and we'll do Q&A around that just to try to manage my own time. I think you can get to routines whereby you might do all your question and answers that have come in at, at nine o'clock and but you're checking the platform almost all the time, right? Because you're, 
it, it does become slightly obsessive. Um, so you get into routines, but what you can't avoid though is, is the very, very public process that you're undertaking because it, it might be that somebody asks you a question and if you don't respond to that or you don't satisfactorily uh, respond to that, you might be putting off a really big ticket investor who's watching, who's lo- looking at that guy, I'm going to watch what, that, what the response to that question is. Oh, very um, interesting. So, so what happens behind closed doors in an angel round is essentially in a crowdfund is happening in public. So I see. So that just the way that you answer a particular question or just, just your responsiveness is everything you're doing then is presumably marketing. It's, it, it's PR. It sounds like this is quite a PR heavy process. And- yeah. And, and prompt responses to investors are always appreciated. You know, unlike founders, investors on these platforms are probably not logging in every day. Uh, we have to remind ourselves of that, 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 that most people are not logging in at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably just me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in terms of the actual active marketing, you use it in the platform itself. I saw you very active on LinkedIn and all of that kind of thing. Were there particular communication channels that you used that you found particularly effective that you'd recommend? Utilizing where your network is, um, is very helpful. There are numerous tools and every and everyone has their own kind of market if you if you profile your investor in the same way you profile your customer that can help you identify the type of individuals that would likely invest into your crowdfunding campaign i think one of the things that surprised me was that platforms and there's a, there's a whole kind of circus that associates crowdfunding of people that are offering solutions that you can pay for to help this process and take you know, make it a bit easier on yourself. Um, and I think, you know, each to their own in terms of whether you choose to use a, a marketing consultant or a brand consultant or even bits that are offered on part of the platform to support your campaign. The only danger is if you if you spend too much money as part of the process of getting your campaign really kicking, you may well find that you spend a good proportion of what you want to raise. So we were very, very cautious that actually we wanted to do it in-house and yeah. we wanted to try and do it in the most economical way possible. And I think that gives across a really good signal as well. I mean, I, I do think it's like kind of founders should be the ones out selling for the early stages of their business and, and, and doing that PR and that kind of thing. I think I do think that it, it gives off course a, a, a very good signal, but it's something that, that founders should be aware of. You know, this is an area that you're not at all confident or connected in. You know, you may need to invest a little bit of time building up your social media following and your networks and learning a bit about the PR side of things before you start planning a crowdfund rather than in the middle of the process. Absolutely. I would actually recommend if, if people are going through the process of trying to find angel networks or investors, I would actually recommend kicking off a crowdfunding preparation process before you need the money and before you're even looking at the actual campaign. Because there's, there's, there's easily two or three months worth of work to lead up to any position where you're actually ready to start taking investment. So two or three months before you've even started to figure out what price you're doing it and going on a platform absolutely yeah i mean in fact there's there's a, at least uh, at least a month's worth of effort just even getting ready so you're in a legal position to be on the platforms so they will do a lot of due diligence on you so in effect if you're about to you want to run a crowdfunding campaign 
I would recommend doing your research, getting in touch with the platform and actually starting that due diligence process relatively quick and early before your campaign. Because you can add two, three months on before you actually be even alive. Isn't it funny how it always comes down to this, you need to be really starting to nail your next round six months before you need it. It's not a bad rule of thumb. What did you find the hardest aspect of the crowdfunding process versus, say, where you were bootstrapping? I think when I look back, to our bootstrapping days, I look back with slightly rosy tinted glasses because in effect at that time, we had arguably nothing to lose because we were bootstrapping, you know, and, and you're just grafting to get things moving. Once you, once you build up a large base of cost and you, and you actually have burn rate, one of the challenges when you're doing a crowdfunding campaign is that you're you need that money needs to come in to keep your business alive. And I think it, it really hits home if you're going through a, a 30 day campaign and you're looking at your, at your contributions in and you're thinking, we need to, we need to hit hundred percent so that I can pay rent next month. So that, that was, uh, that was a, an it's emotional turmoil in terms of going through that process. Now I'm ecstatic that we, that we completed our raise and, and ultimately we didn't have doubt that we would, but the challenge when you look back to bootstrapping, is that actually when you're bootstrapping, you don't have that money, you don't have those overheads in the first place because you're trying to, to build something from the ground up. My memory of that phase is always that, yay, that's so fun, there's so much freedom, we just solve problems and sweat our way through it. That, you know, you don't have any other choice, but you do have the one piece of freedom, which is no burn rate, you know, no monthly recurring costs. Now, I'm already in the phase of, you know, my new startup where those those days of we'll just hack our way through it uh, because there are no costs are long gone. And now you're kind of every month that you don't hit the progress and the milestones that you need to be making. It's just the cliff comes closer and there's so much work involved in servicing and financing your funding cliff. There are some... Founders who just love the investment side of it, if left to their own devices, they would do nothing but raise money. And, and sometimes they do. And, and, but that's not me. I like always see it as a means to an end. So when I'm deep in those investment modes, I kind of always feel a bit worried that I've taken my eye off the business. And I know I did that. Um, I know I did that in my last business. And there's a trade-off you have to make. I've got to take off my, my eye off my business to focus on raising money full-time so that we can get back to doing the business. But it is something I think that, that founders really should be aware of, just how much everything stops whilst you do all this. And so your point about don't spend too much of your money that you're raising on raising the money is really important. And I think that's why also it's come across many times in this podcast is don't raise too little money, you know, try to raise as much as you can to do your plan while you're doing this because it's such hard work. Did you get a sense of the minimum amount that you need to be raising for the effort of it all to be worth what the business gets for it? Yes, and I think I think there's always a, a minimum in your in your head. One of the things that we tried to to spend a lot of time on during our crowdfunding campaign was to use the 
use any spare time we had to kind of take stock, look at the things that we were directing effort towards and try and use it to kind of prepare so that when money is in the bank, you can put out those contracts that you can move relatively quickly. You know, when you when we talk about minimum, maximum kind of raises, it's, it's a really nebulous concept because it's, it's all a matter of time. And we look at how long, how long is a raise meant to last? Because the, the, the challenge of raising too little is, of course, that you, you end up going back out to the market and you, you haven't really got anything. You haven't really got anything new to show people. And, um, you know, investors are, can be forgiving. They can maybe forgive you that book. At one one time, but you know, over time, you know that will catch up with you. So I think there's a there's a sweet spot between raising raising your minimum, but also not raising too much, and being willing when you go through a, a value creation inflection point to then go out back to the market and raise and raise again. In this new business, and this is the benefit of being a serial entrepreneur who's done multiple businesses and raised money. I. And my co-founders um, are very, very keen to avoid the small early stage round phase at all. But I, I certainly found in, in, in previous businesses, and I've observed this with, with other founders, is that if you do raise too little, you just permanently, all of your effort is going into investment. You are permanently in an in investment and fundraising mode. And as you say, that has a negative impact on how you're perceived by the investment world. But I think even more importantly than that, it has a massively negative impact on your business and your ability to deliver it. And I think I truly now, in in retrospect, I would kind of advise founders to get as far as they can in that bootstrapping mode and then start to look at quick cash ways whether that's pre-selling stuff, whether that's certain types of startup loans, things like that, that let you get through the next phase so that you can come in like you have with this crowdfunding round, that you can come in in a strong position with some money already committed so that you end up using your time in an efficient way and the opportunity cost of your time. Is there anything else that you would particularly give as to early stage founders I think crowdfunding can be a really good way of validating your business idea. And in effect, it should be treated like any angel group or any uh, investment option. So when you're looking at trying to raise funds and you've got that list of, oh, we can go angel investors, we could go to the startup loans companies, add crowdfunding in that mix. Um, And consider if, if you're trying to build a prototype and it's relatively low cost and bootstrapping, Consider whether you know your very first round could be done with crowdfunding. But I think the key thing is being being realistic about valuations and the amount you want to raise. Crowdfunding investors will, will be completely interested in very early stage, very small businesses if all the numbers are relative to that. But I kind of take I, I take your 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 point actually, Vicky, that getting as far as you can bootstrapping is a is a way that we 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 took our business, and and I do think. Sometimes there is a rush to raise money before people have truly done everything they can do to take their business forward. And, and actually, that, that would be the first thing I would ask is, can you, can you go further by you know, having, finding a friend who can help you do some coding? Or can you go further by getting a customer to maybe pay for a pilot or, or search out that grant? And investment is not by any means 
the quickest, easiest solution. And just because you have money doesn't necessarily change the fundamentals of your business. Brilliant. I'm going to type that in a quote and put it on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. I wish you and your team every success. Now you've got what I hope will be rocket fuel to take you forward to the next stage of your development and I shall continue to stalk you on LinkedIn and observe how that goes. You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Sam Pettifer, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Aunts. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or YouTube and as ever you can submit your question on Twitter or at the podcast website.